Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So last week, um, we unpacked verses 2 through 4, where uh, Paul talked about our communication with God in a ministry of prayer. And specifically, he showed how prayer for those on the front lines of evangelism and church planting is an important way in which we participate in Jesus' kingdom mission. Well, here in verses 5 and 6, Paul reminds us that as we pray for the ministry partners around the world, we also have to apply these same things to ourselves and our own backyard. We're certainly to pray for the spread of the gospel around the world with our partners like we did last week, Ken Tombing in India and others. But we're also to bring gospel restoration to our corner of this broken world. You know, I, I've come to appreciate um, the perspective of Dick Lucas, a pastor in England, a prolific writer, and, and he, he points out that you know, some people, people like the Apostle Paul, people like Ken Tomping and church planters and missionaries, some people are called and they are gifted for uh, proactive, direct, confrontational evangelism. And they are just good at it. And they can go to somebody and they can engage them in conversation and they can go after it. But he makes the point, and I definitely agree with him, that experience seems to have taught me that I think most of us are called not to the direct, you know, confrontational evangelism. We are called more to responsive reactive evangelism, where we are reacting to the situations that God brings before us, trying to respond in such a way where the gospel is winsomely proclaimed or put on display for the person that we're interacting with. Now, now we're all called to spread the gospel. We're all gifted differently, but we all have the same call. Just as we have that call to the ministry of prayer, we have the call to spread the gospel and to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs. But how we go about it may be differently, may be different. Well, in this passage, Paul is making an important point that how we interact with unbelievers opens or closes doors of opportunity for gospel restoration. And so as we look in this passage, we're going to see how this, is tr- how this is true by way of three distinct gospel applications. First of all, the things that we re- realize is that unbelievers do not typically read the Bible. They read our lives. They do not read the Bible. They read us. And beginning in verse 5, Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Outsiders here is referring to unbelievers, those who... Um, do not know Christ, who in this passage, as you look at it, gives this passage an evangelistic ring to it. Uh, It's very clear. Here he's saying, hey guys, let's talk about your interaction with unbelievers and your call to bring the gospel to them. If we were to contextualize this opening phrase, we might say, walk wisely with those who don't need Jesus and who need gospel restoration. This opening phrase is very, very important. In fact, you can make the case that the rest of verses 5 and 6 is nothing more than an amplification of this opening phrase, walk wisely towards 
unbelievers. So when we think about that opening phrase, there's some questions that we need to ask. For example, what does he mean by wisdom? So many of you know what wisdom is. Last summer, we went through the book of Proverbs. We had multiple messages on wisdom, but just to make sure that we're all on the same page, in the Bible, the basic meaning of the word wisdom is skill, expertise in something. And, and that skill and expertise in something brings about a desired result, something that is beautiful and good. And so when you relate it to life, wisdom is skill and expertise and insight into our daily world that is applied in such a way that it brings about a beautiful life, a good life. So if you are a wise person, you have skill, expertise, as you interact with life itself that ends up resulting in you having a good life, a better life than what the unwise would have. Um, wisdom is more than knowledge. We all know dumb, smart people. <laughs> and if you don't know any dumb, smart people, okay. We all know dumb, smart people. So wisdom is using and applying knowledge skillfully to various situations. I like the way Dr. Adrian Rogers, who many of us benefited from through the years, he defined wisdom as the ability to see life from God's point of view. Wisdom. We all need it. So what is its relationship to evangelism? Well, what you see in the scriptures is a connection between our ability to lead people to Christ and this skill, this expertise, wisdom. So, for example, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, the person who wins souls is wise. At the end of Daniel, chapter 12, the wise person will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness they are like the stars forever and ever. Scriptures tell us that wise people lead other people to the source of all wisdom, who is Jesus Christ. You've, you intrinsically know this. For example, if you have ever been involved in a conversation with somebody who maybe is an unbeliever or is perhaps antagonistic towards Christ or the church in some way, in the middle of that conversation, even as you were listening or talking, down deep in your heart, what were you doing? You were praying, Lord, help. Give me the words to say to this person. You ever done that? Right. You see, you understand wisdom and evangelism are definitely connected. It takes wisdom. It takes skill and expertise and insight into our daily world and for the people that we interact with in order to open the doors for gospel restoration. Wisdom and evangelism go together. So now what does it look like to walk in wisdom toward outsiders? That word walk is essentially a metaphor for how we live our lives. It's specifically addressing our character and our conduct out in the world. It's, it means that we live in a way that we do not bring reproach upon the name of Christ, but instead we bring glory to Jesus and to his church. Several years back, I was a pastor in another church in another city, and I had, uh, I had a repair that needed to be made, and I 
lined up a repairman, and when he came, as I engaged him in conversation, he found out that I was the pastor of the church in this very small town right around the corner. And he said, oh, you're, that pa- you're the pastor of that church? He goes, I know somebody in your church, and he named a guy. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, he's, he's one of our deacons. He's, he's been a deacon at this church forever and ever, and I never will forget what he said. He goes, well, said, all I can say is that you better guard your wallet with one hand and have an ironclad contract in the other. Otherwise, he's going to take you for a ride. What do you think the chances are he's ever going to come to that church? And what's his perception of Christians as a result? That, that deacon was not walking wisely toward outsiders. Wisdom, it's skill in life. So let's think about what that looks like to walk skillfully towards outsiders. Most of you have a job. You have a career. You are walking wisely toward outsiders when you are skillful in your vocation. When when your coworkers see you as a competent, good professional, someone they want to be on, on their project. They want you on their project. They They look at you and say, hey, he's a good guy. He's a good gal. They do good work. They see you being a value to the company and to their project and and helping them in their work. That is walking wisely at work. It, it, It means that we are diligent in raising our children in such a way that other parents want their children hanging out with our children so that our children rub off on their children. That's walking wisely towards outsiders. It it looks like being being skillful in hospitality, uh, opening your home in such a way that others want to come in and enjoy the football party or this or that or whatever the purpose may be. Or conversely, they want you at their home when they have parties because you are enjoyable to have. Isn't it interesting that the unbelievers of Jesus' day wanted Jesus the religious teacher and preacher at their parties. Christians should be wanted at non-Christian parties. Okay, Walking wisely toward unbelievers. It means that we live in a way that we don't throw up unnecessary obstacles to future gospel opportunities and conversations. So this requires us to think that, hey, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. The main thing is always the gospel, and everything else is secondary. We have to keep the main thing in its proper place. So as a result, our conversations are going to be characterized by humility and kindness and compassion. We'll avoid judgment statements on secondary matters. Listen, we all have conversations with people, and in the back of our head, we're thinking, this is absolutely the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, and you can spout off, especially those of you who are more analytical, in your mind, you've already thought of the six reasons why there are so many logical fallacies in what this person is saying. But you know, when you walk wisely towards unbelievers, you keep all those logical fallacies to yourself. You do not have to correct every error, especially errors that are of a secondary nature, Keep the gospel the main thing. We walk wisely toward unbelievers when we remember that we are soldiers of Christ, not culture warriors. When we don't politicize the gospel, and this is a big one for us right now in this inflamed environment that we live in, church, let covenant 
Presbyterian be different than other churches. We're going to stand for righteousness, but we are not going to politicize Christianity and the gospel. Because if we do, we're not going to walk wisely toward unbelievers. I like what John Piper says about this. He says, wisdom takes note of the manners and social customs of the community and avoids offensive and rude behavior. It adorns the gospel, as Paul says in Titus 2.10. It reinforces it. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not act unbecomingly. Instead, it acts wisely and does not offend customs and mores and cultural expectations that are not sinful. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we walk wisely toward unbelievers? Paul understood that unbelievers read our lives, not the Bible. They draw conclusions about the gospel and about Jesus and his church through our character and our conduct. You know, this was a huge issue for the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church were walking unwisely toward unbelievers. It was so bad that Paul said to the Corinthians, Gentile pagans are ashamed to be around you because of the way you are living your life. They were so violating the cultural norms and the societal expectations of what it would look like to be a good person that they were hindering the cause of Christ. And so the apostle Paul, he addresses this with them. He says, you have got to stop walking in such a way towards those who need gospel restoration. People both inside your church and outside the church, out in the community. And he ultimately says this to them, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles, the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others, so that many may be saved. That is a fantastic description of what it looks like to walk wisely. It is important as our character and our conduct is how unbelievers first come to perceive and understand the gospel. Second application, when our fullness is Jesus, common moments have eternal potential. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Literally what he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, the time redeeming. The time redeeming. What does he mean by that? Well, that that word behind that phrase is a business word. It's actually kind of an investing term or a, a term of commerce. You know, we we have all kinds of business terms and acronyms like ROI. ROI is, yeah, there you go, return on investment. You know what my favorite uh, acronym is? B-O-G-O, BOGO. I like that one. And I will confess that when I go into Publix, I may be going in for Diet Coke on the other side of the Publix, but you know what I, or I always go first? The BOGO bin. And I'll tell you something, I go there, and sometimes Catherine rolls her eyes, you mean more olive oil? <laughs> but that stuff is 16 bucks a bottle. 
And when they have Bertoli on BOGO, I am snatching up that extra bottle, right? And you do the same thing, don't you? You see a good deal, you snatch it up, you snap it up. Guys, that is absolutely what Paul is saying here. He's saying, since we are ambassadors of Christ, we are to snatch up opportunities that come our way. We are to buy up those opportunities and store them because in the future, a door for gospel restoration may be opened with that opportunity. So in other words, ladies, when you're invited to to come over and have some fun at another neighbor's house, they're hosting some kind of party, jewelry, this, or cards, or whatever it may be, or some kind of uh, shower, Paul tells you, snap it up, just like you would that dress off the clearance rack that looks so good on you. Snatch that puppy, all right? Fellas, when that neighbor is doing a yard project, go over and get involved and show him the love of Christ. Snatch up that opportunity like you would a free trip offshore, okay? That's what he's saying here. This phrase, it's actually very much a stewardship phrase, You know, Jacob in his prayer referred to stewardship and all that God has given us. Stewardship of the time and the opportunities is what's playing at play here. Stewardship is recognizing that everything belongs to God. Everything. And everything about our lives belongs to God. And and we understand this. We have parents even right now who are holding children and taking care of their children. We understand that, 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 that these children, they belong to God. They're first God's children that he then entrusts to us to raise and manage and, and bring up in a way that brings honor to God. That's what stewardship is. Stewardship is taking the things that God has entrusted to us and managing it in such a way that it ends up bringing honor and glory to God. So you're managing it wisely in order that God is glorified. And so we can easily see this. Children's an easy one to see. Yes, we are supposed to raise these children, manage their lives, bring them up so that they bring honor and glory to God. We can see this with other things, the earth. As stewards of the earth, we're supposed to take care of God's creation so that it brings honor and glory to him. We see this with the gospel itself. That's what Paul is getting at here in this passage, that we are stewards of the gospel. We're to manage these opportunities well. We see it with money. He gives us so much money, a certain amount of money. It all belongs to him. Now manage it in a way that glorifies him. So we see this concept in all these different areas where we often forget it is time. Time. You see, the very seconds and minutes of our lives belong to God. And he's given us a finite amount of time. He gives us a finite amount of opportunities. And this verse is calling on us to manage these times, this time, these moments, these opportunities in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Let me ask you a question. In your life right now, are there potential opportunities that you have been hesitating to snatch up? Have you been holding back at work because you're concerned about what they may think? Have you been holding back with your neighbor because, you know, what, you know? Have you been given opportunities in your dorm or at college or at school and 
and you're just sitting back rather than snapping up those opportunities. There's three things that we need to remember about this. When we're called to snatch up these opportunities, we're supposed to do so wisely. So that party that you attend uh, is not necessarily a God-given opportunity to become a street preacher. <laughs> um, that, uh, God may simply want you to go to that party and make lifelong friendships because he knows in his plan that a friend of the friend that you make at that party there's going to be a gospel opportunity, a kingdom opportunity in that secondary friend's life that he's going to use you for years later. You, you, we don't have to force this. That, that, that guy at work who all of a sudden opens up and begins to pour out his heart that his marriage is in trouble and that he's looking at divorce, that may very well be the time just to have a, a compassionate ear and a supportive friendship that's not necessarily the time to tell him everything and do a full exegesis of what Paul says about divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so we're to wisely snatch up these opportunities. And the reason why we can be wise about this ultimately is because of God's sovereignty over these opportunities. God is sovereign over the timing of these opportunities you know, the scriptures tell us in Galatians chapter 4 that when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. In other words, when we think about everything that occurs in this world, the most important event in human history, when Jesus broke through time and space and he took on human flesh, and then he lived that perfect life that all of us were supposed to live, and then died the death that all of us deserve to die rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life. All of that happened at exactly the right time according to God's divine calendar. God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over that concrete contractor issue in December. We don't like it. We go, it cost us five. But God's doing something in that. We don't understand it. We don't know why, but God is absolutely sovereign. And he's sovereign over these divine appointments that we have with other people. And the timing is not a coincidence. He's sovereign over the timing, and church, he's sovereign over the results. And that right there is why we can relax and pray and meditate and think, how do I interact with this person wisely? You see, because, because God is responsible for the results, that frees us from having to be manipulative, to pressure people, to feel this incredible burden. If, if I give them the wrong answer to their question, that may send them to hell. I mean, I gave, here's John. He gave the wrong answer to, to Jim's question. And now Jesus is on the throne rolling his eyes saying, well, now that guy is going to go to hell and we wanted him to go to heaven because he blew it. That's not happening, folks. God doesn't work that way. A person's eternal destiny is not contingent upon how well we do and manage these moments and opportunities of kingdom advancement. And in fact, here's what should free us. If we approach it with humility and an honest heart, Lord, just use me. 
Sometimes we walk away from these opportunities and we think, boy, I just thought that was bad. And later on, you find out from that person that that little thing you said in that bad man that you just thought was completely messed up, the Holy Spirit took that one little sentence and just, boom, drove it right into their heart. And that's what they needed. See, we don't have to worry about the results in snatching up these opportunities. We're called just to snatch them and entrust the Lord with the results because he is sovereign over their timing and over the consequent and the, the fruit that comes about. The focus in verse 2 is on our walk. Typically, unbelievers read us, not our Bible, not a Bible to understand the gospel. And when our walk is filled with Jesus, there are sacred eternal there's sacred eternal potential in every opportunity that we have with unbelievers. Verse 2 is about our walk. Verse, uh, excuse me, verse, verse 5 is about our walk. Verse 6 is about our talk. Final gospel application this morning. Our speech impacts another person's perception and reception of Jesus. Let your speech, and, and this is any kind of speech. This is mundane speech, important speech, private speech, public speech. This is professional at work speech, recreational speech. This is verbal words. This is things that we put in writing on social media. It's any kind of communication. Let your speech always, no exceptions, even when the other person deserves to be put in their place, let your speech always be gracious. Let your speech be always pleasant, winsome, kind, attractive, compassionate. Let your speech always make a good impression. Let your speech be always godly. That's what that word means. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is in prison in Rome when he wrote, wrote this letter to the Colossian church. And I can't help but wondering, as he wrote these words, if he wasn't thinking about his own experience within the last year or two. As you go to the book of Acts, you realize that before he ended up in that prison cell in Rome, he was brought before multiple tribunals, the governors of Judea and Palestine, men like Felix and Festus, the, uh, the Jewish king Agrippa. And what you read in those accounts is that when Paul, who was you know, uh, you know, wrongfully accused, he was innocent of these charges, when he came before these men and the courts, he did not rant and rave. He did not point to the conspiracy and, and just go off the deep end. Instead, he saw these moments as opportunities to represent Jesus to people who needed him. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, you have King Agrippa, after hearing the testimony of Paul and Paul's witness and explanation to him of the gospel, you have King Agrippa, the king of the Jews, saying, almost you have persuaded me, Paul. Almost you have persuaded me. I think in the same way, Peter experienced these same kinds of situations. And so, that's what was behind his writing in 1 Peter chapter 3. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with, say it out loud, gentleness and respect. Dr. David Harbour on this verse writes, Our speech to others is to be gracious, palatable, and appropriate. We are not to try to badger others into the kingdom of God, but rather our words are always to be full of grace. We are not to try to force the word of God on others, but rather we are to speak the word of God in such a way that it is appealing to others. Our words are to be seasoned with salt. We are not to say the same thing in the same way in every situation but rather we are to be sensitive enough to say the right thing in the right situation at the right time. This sensitivity will help us to know how you ought to answer each person. Church, how we interact with unbelievers, it opens or closes doors of opportunity for gospel restoration. May this week... God, use us to open doors, not close them. Heavenly Father, that is our heart's desire, that we be used by you for your kingdom purposes. Uh, Lord, it, it can be intimidating, this whole topic. It can be very scary. We can be nervous. Help us to trust you. Greater is he who lives within us as your children than he that is in the world. Father, help us to trust you to surrender ourselves to you, to allow you to guide our thoughts, to relax and rest knowing that your spirit is in control, that we can't mess it up, that even if we are halting in our language and we stutter and we think later of a better answer, you, make care, you take care of all of that because you're sovereign over it all. Thank you for using us in your plan to bring redemption to many more people here in Palm Bay. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.